0: This is a sermon from the Highlands Congregation of Park Church. We hope it helps you walk with the Lord and lead others to Christ. Learn more and find more resources at Parkchurch.org. Our scripture reading this morning is from Matthew 10, verses 1 to 4. Again, we're reading from Matthew chapter 10, verses 1 to 4. And he called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits, to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction." The names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Amen. Thank you so much. Well, good morning. Good seeing you. Glad you're all here. Uh, My name is Chris, and I'm one of the pastors here at Park. And in just a minute, we're gonna be getting into Matthew chapter 10, uh, verses one through four, as you just heard read, uh, as we continue on in our series going through Matthew's gospel. Uh, But before we do that, uh, I just wanted to take a moment and mention, hopefully most of you were able to see our announcement yesterday that we sent out uh, via social media and email regarding the recent CDC changes on masking and social distancing guidelines. Um, while we are very, very excited about the, the positive direction this is going, as a leadership team, we did not have an opportunity to meet since uh, the local like state and, and city uh, announcements didn't come out till late on Friday. So we haven't had a chance to get together and talk about what that means for us as an organization. But I do wanna let you know that tomorrow we're gonna to be meeting and discussing this and working through what, how we're gonna move forward with the new changes so I just ask that you'd be patient with us. I'm sure you can understand with an organization with so many people and so many moving parts, we just need to make sure that we take our time, talk through some things, and make sure we have all those details covered. But I promise you, before next Sunday, you will be hearing from us. Okay? Sound good? We all right? So thank you for your patience. Appreciate that. And we are definitely excited to be moving into a new phase. Amen? Amen? Thank God. All right? So we're excited. All right, so let's get into Matthew chapter 10, verses one through four. Have your Bibles there. Hey, I wanted to take a moment and give you an opportunity. to Think back to the first time you were able to drive a vehicle by yourself, car, truck, whatever it was. Nobody else in the car, just you, the car, and the open road. Can you remember that? For some of us, it's a little harder than others, but do you remember? You remember that experience? Uh, Remember the excitement, maybe a little bit of apprehension there. Uh, But for all of us, that was a massive life-changing experience. Instantly, you went from being a, a passive bystander to an active participant in the process of driving a vehicle. And really, in a sense, your life's never been the same. Uh, so you got to ask, well, what did it take to make that happen? How how were we able to get to that place? Well, there were a number of things, right? Uh, you had to reach a certain age, you had to pass a few tests. Uh, some of us had to try a few more times than others to pass those tests, but get those t- uh, tests passed. You had to have so many hours behind the wheel with someone riding along with you, and, and then ultimately you had to be authorized by the state you lived in to be legally considered capable of driving on your own. In other words, the authority to drive had to be delegated to you. Uh, It wasn't something you could delegate to yourself, uh, unless you live in West Virginia or something. I'm just kidding. Anyway, uh, it was an authority. I'm just kidding, right? It, you can laugh. Um, it was an authority or power that you received from a higher authority. And what we see happening here in Matthew chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, we see Jesus, hand, in a sense, handing the car keys over to his disciples and saying to them, hey, you've been watching me drive for long enough. Now it's your Turn. Notice in verse 1, 10 verse 1, and he called to him. This is Jesus calling to himself, his 12. Remember, he had already called them in a sense to come and be his disciples. Now he's calling them to something new. Called to him, his 12 disciples, and gave them authority. That word gave there could be translated into trusted authority bestowed, it could be also translated caused. All right, so what you see going on here is God is entrusting or bestowing or causing these disciples to have authority. The mission of the inauguration of the rule and reign of God on earth was now being shared with the disciples. And their lives and the world would never be the same. And that same mission is our mission as followers of Jesus Christ. Through the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ, his followers have been authorized and empowered, just like the original disciples, to bring healing and hope into a world that desperately needs it. So what do we see in these verses regarding this mission and how does it apply to us? Let me give you four realities about the mission of God for us as believers today. First thing, if you're taking notes, write this down. Prayer is the fuel for the mission. Go ahead and write that down. Prayer is the fuel for the mission. Now notice, if you would, back up in chapter 9, well, start in verse 36. Gary did a great job preaching this passage last week, but it's important to get this little bit of context before we move forward into chapter 10. So prayer is the fuel for the mission. Start in chapter 9, verse 36. It says, when he, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. When he saw the crowds, he was moved. There was something about seeing those people that moved him because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. As he looked out over the crowd, he was moved with compassion and said, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. So that's the problem. That's the issue. There's a big harvest, not enough laborers. So what is Jesus going to do? And notice what he says. Therefore, so therefore, based on what he saw, this is what he said, Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest. Here's the first response. Here's the first action. Pray. Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And then notice 10 verse 1. And he called to him his 12 disciples. Now, I don't know if this hits you like it hits me. But it is striking to me that the first thing that Jesus says to do when he's moved with compassion for people and he has this urgency for the mission of God, the first thing he says to do is pray. He doesn't say plan. He doesn't say strategize. He doesn't say recruit. He doesn't say fundraise. He doesn't say go build a building. He doesn't say, hey, promote. He says, pray. And not just pray, pray to the Lord of the harvest. Pray to the one who alone has the power to bring people from death to life, from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Pray to the Lord of the harvest for something very specific. Pray that the Lord of the harvest would send out laborers. Look what it says, that he would send out laborers into the harvest. Pray for that. Pray that God would send out people who are gripped by the spiritual need that is all around them. Pray for people who are more concerned with the spiritual needs of people than their own personal comforts. People who would be willing to labor with Jesus. Pray for those kind of people. People who'd be willing to labor with Jesus as he draws people into a life-giving relationship with himself. So why is it pray? Why isn't it advertised? Why isn't it strategized? Why isn't build a a building? Why not start with some other strategy? Well, Martin Luther, the reformer said it like this. Prayer is the mightiest of all weapons that human beings can wield. Prayer, listen to that again. Prayer is the mightiest of all weapons that human beings can wield. Do we believe that about prayer? Do we really believe that? Uh, Stephen Lawson commenting on Luther's quote, he says this, simply put, prayer is the infinite power of God committed to the hand of mere finite man. It is the closest that man can come to wielding divine omnipotence. We'll never be omnipotent as the people of God, but this is the closest we can get to it, is through prayer. Nothing can prevail against prayer, not even Satan and hell itself. Yet, tragically, prayer is often the most neglected of all Christian disciplines. And then he goes on to say, and our lives and ministries suffer for it. So let me ask some questions. When was the last time we were moved with compassion for our city? I'm saying we, I'm asking myself as well. When was the last time we were moved with compassion for our city, like Jesus was moved with compassion for these people? When was the last time we looked at the crowds on the street, in the restaurant, at the game, in the bar, and our hearts were broken for them? not looking down on them in some self-righteous way, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about compassion, not self-righteousness. Compassion, that, that literally we're heartbroken for those who don't yet have a relationship with God through Jesus. When was the last time for us When was the last time we realized that the spiritual need was so great and that the harvest was truly plentiful like Jesus said it is? We really believe that so much that we prayed for God to send more and more followers of Jesus into the city. When was the last time we prayed for that? People who love the people of the city enough to bring them the the life-giving message of reconciliation with God? When was the last time? And here's the last question here for us on this. When was the last time we realized that we as followers of Jesus are actually the answer to the prayer to send out laborers into the harvest? It's interesting after Jesus tells his disciples at the end of chapter nine, pray for laborers to go into the harvest. Look immediately what happens in Uh, chapter 10, verse one. Remember he said, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers. (laughs) Here you have the Lord of the harvest, Jesus himself, 1. And he called to himself his 12 disciples. Pray that laborers go into the harvest. Oh, and by the way, disciples, you are the answer to the prayer. Get going. I'm authorizing you. I'm sending you out. Immediately we see him sending them out as laborers into the harvest field. So when was the last time we realized that every follower of Jesus is the answer to the prayer for laborers in the harvest field? Meaning if you are a follower of Jesus, you are part of that answered prayer. When was the last time you really understood that and believed that and put that into practice? Uh, That leads us to the next reality of the mission and that is this, authority is the power for the mission. That delegated authority to us from Christ is the power for the mission. Look back at verse 1. It says, And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority. All right, delegated authority. And gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease. And every affliction, and if you keep reading through the chapter, you'll see it next week. Also authority to proclaim the good news of the kingdom. So there's action, there's deeds, there's a message all wrapped up together. And Jesus authorized them and empowered them to go be on mission in the world. We are not sent out in our own strength to accomplish this mission. Isn't that good news? It's amazing news. Because if we were, we would be completely hopeless to do what needs to be done. Listen to the words of Jesus in John. Jesus in John chapter 15, verse 5. Very familiar verse. I'm sure you haven't memorized, many of you. Jesus said, I am the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Like talking about spiritual fruit. And then he ends it with this. Because apart from me, you can do Nothing. It doesn't say, apart from me, you can do some things. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And there the nothing is referring to spiritual eternal fruit. That's not something we can produce in our own strength, in our own ability. We have to be authorized and empowered and indwelt by the Spirit of God to accomplish this. Now notice again where this authoritative power comes from. It's not something you bestow upon yourself. It's not the power of positive thinking. It's not something you generate within yourself. Verse 1, look what it says. It says, and he gave them authority. He gave them authority. This is delegated authority. And as a follower of Jesus Christ, you have been, you have been delegated authority and power to accomplish the will of God. That's true. And in the text here, what is that will? What is the will of God? Keep going. Uh, he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and to heal every affliction. And what we see here is nothing is too big for the power of God. Now, you guys know if you've been around for the last couple of weeks that we've been talking about healing from Matthew chapter before, uh, both physical healing, spiritual healing, and how that was a, a major part of Jesus' ministry and is a ministry that is continued on today through the people of God by the power of the Spirit. So today we aren't going to spend a lot of time on that. So I'd encourage you to go back, listen to the last two weeks. Gary and Miguel, their messages were great. They cover this. So we're not going to spend a ton of time today. But to put it simply, the mission of God For the people of God is to be authorized agents of healing. Authorized, empowered agents of healing. Healing of both physical needs and spiritual needs. So the question for us again today is, do we really believe this? Do we really believe that this is true? Jesus said it is. Do we really believe that God has authorized us empowered us by the spirit to be his agents of healing in the world. Do we really believe this? Do we believe that he has placed us here in this city at this time in our neighborhoods, in our classrooms, in our apartments, in our workplaces, in our families, in our gym or wherever you are for the purpose of bringing healing and reconciliation to the people in those places, the people you live with, the people you intersect with every day. Your lives are mixed together. This idea of disciples being authorized and empowered by God to carry out his mission to the world was so important to Jesus, right? So important to him that these are really the last words he spoke to them revolved around that theme, that they are going to be sent out and empowered to continue on the mission when Jesus is no longer with them. Notice that if you would grab your Bible, go to Acts chapter one, turn to the right, Acts chapter one, right after the gospels. Now just know where this is in context. This is after Jesus has been raised from the dead. He's about to ascend up into heaven, right? So he's got one final word for his disciples. And here it is. Acts chapter one, verse four. And remember, this also follows Matthew's great commission, right? So Matthew 28, go into all the world to make disciples, but don't do it yet, okay? Hold on, there's something else that needs to happen. Look at verse four. And while staying with them, he ordered them. That's strong language. Jesus ordered his disciples not to depart from Jerusalem But to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And then go down to verse 8. Amazing. Look at this. But you will receive power. There's that authority. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you and then... And not until then, but then, after that, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The authority of God is the power for the mission. Not our own strength, not our own skill, not our own ingenuity, not our own gifting. The delegated authority of God is the power for the mission, and he's given that to everyone who names the name of Jesus Christ. Third, and this one we're going to park here just for a few minutes. This one's really important today. I sense we need to spend some time here. Third reality is this. Unity, not uniformity, is the uniqueness of the mission unity not uniformity is the uniqueness of this mission that we're on with Jesus it's so unique because the unity that Jesus is calling to us to on this mission cannot be found in the world apart from Jesus Let's look at this. Verses two through four. You're going to go, wait, that's just a bunch of names. Where did you get this? Hang in there. Let's keep reading. Verse two. The names of the 12 apostles. Notice the shift that just took place, by the way. They were just called disciples in the verse before. Now they're called apostles. There's a transition happening. Disciple means learner right, observing, learning from Jesus. Apostle is someone who is now sent out. So they're they're going from just being bystanders to active participants. So now, this is the first time Matthew's used the word apostle, okay, so it's a big transition. So the names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him, who betrayed Christ. Now, initially, when I found out I was going to be preaching this passage, I was a little bit bummed. It's like, dang, what am I going to do with three verses of names? This is is going to be a boring sermon. What are we going to do with this? But then as I jumped in, I began to realize, man, there is a lot going on in this list. Let me just give you one theological point and then some application. First, the fact that he picked 12 disciples slash apostles to represent him and his ministry in the world is no accident. First century Jews would have heard 12 and go, oh, I know what he's doing here. I know what the claim is. Most theologians will tell you that they are symbolic, the 12 apostles are symbolic of the 12 tribes of Israel. And Jesus is, in a sense, reconstituting Israel here, which by the way, is a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy to fulfill the original mission that God had given his people. And that was the mission for Israel uh, to be the light of the world, which unfortunately they failed at. Uh, They they were to draw the nations of the world to God by being the light of the world. And so now he's sending out his disciples as the salt and the light of the world to draw the nations to God. Amazing. But second, and this is really more of the focus for, for now, In this listing of disciples, we see something absolutely supernatural taking place. Again, not something you're just gonna see every day in the culture. People from all different walks of life, different political views, different economic situations, united around one mission, the mission of Jesus Christ. See, in this list, There are men who made their living in the fishing industry. So they are fishermen. And I think we kind of get this idea, well, all of them were fishermen. No, only a few of them were. There are two sets of brothers in the list. One of the disciples was a tax collector, Matthew, which meant he worked for the Roman empire, right? And would collect taxes for Rome. And then after he collected taxes for Rome, he would collect over and above to make himself wealthy. So therefore, he was hated by the Jewish community, even though he was a Jew, he worked for the Roman Empire. And then right next to him, you have someone who was known as a zealot, Simon the Zealot. He's like the opposite of Matthew the tax collector. A a zealot was someone who was involved in the pursuit of overthrowing the Roman Empire to overthrow Rome so they no longer would rule over Israel, right? And then you bring him into the same group and send them on the same mission with a guy who's been working for the Roman Empire, working against everything he was about. See, before Simon became one of Jesus' disciples, he would have hated Matthew. He would have hated him. And everything he stood for, just to help you understand how sharp the contrast is, Modern terms, it'd be like a Navy SEAL and a member of the Taliban coming together, working on something for common, like some common mission together. Like That's not gonna happen in the real world. But that's what it was like for a guy like Simon and Matthew coming together. And just so we all understand this, Jesus did not just long for unity among his original disciples. He longs for unity among his followers today, right here, right now, as Park Church. Not uniformity, by the way. See, we get that mixed up. That's what the culture is selling us. The culture calls it unity, but what it really is is uniformity, meaning we all have to look the same, act the same, think the same, eat the same, dress the same, vote the same, spend our money the same way, and if you don't, cancel you. That's the culture's version of unity. That's not unity. That's uniformity. Jesus is not calling us to be robots. He's calling us to be unified, and He wants it so badly that He prayed for it. God on earth praying to His Father in heaven. He prayed for it. If you would turn there quickly to John chapter 17, again to the right, John 17. This is known as the high priestly prayer of Jesus. And in this chapter, he's praying for his disciples, his original 12. And then over in verse 20, there's a shift that takes place. And he begins to pray for us. How do we know that? Because he says, those who believed in their word, the original disciples and their message, which if you're a follower of Jesus, that's you. Let's read it. Verse 20, I do not ask for those only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, all right? So the words of the original apostles, those who would believe that would be us if we're follower of Jesus, that they, us, as followers of Christ today, that they may all be what, what's the word? One, unified, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, why? Why is he praying for unity? Here's why it's so important. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. It doesn't say they get together on Sunday and people will believe that, they, that you sent me. It says make them one. Make them unified so that the world will believe that you sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. So we're to reflect the character and nature of God, the divine trinity, holy one. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one. He just keeps saying one, 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 one. It can be translated unified, 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 unified. So that the world may know. Again, here it is. That's why it's so important. So that the world may know that you sent me. And then he takes it a step further. And loved them. Even as you loved me. God, I'm praying that the disciples who will, who will be coming after these original disciples will be one so that the world will know that you sent me, that he's sent from God, and you can trust him, you can believe in him, you can put your eternity in him, and that the world will know that God actually loves them. We can say God loves you all day long, but if they don't see us loving each other, why would they believe it? That's the point. That's the point. I want us to ask this honest, convicting question today. Believe me, it's not, I'm not pointing fingers at you, I'm pointing them at me. This has been convicting me all week. Here it is, do the people of Denver know that Jesus was sent by God and that God loves them because of how unified the followers of Jesus are in the city. Ask that question. We're around people all the time. Is that what they think about the church? Is that what they think about God? Are we known by the city for our love and unity as Christians? Or are we known more for our division over political views? It's an honest, fair question. Are we known more for what we think about masks and social distancing? The arguments we have over those things. Are we known more for that? Or by how much we love each other? So may Park Church be a place where Anyone could walk in and say, I don't totally understand all that this place is about. I don't get it. But I know one thing. These people love each other. It's tangible. I can see it. I can feel it. May that be what we are known for in the city. Amen. What we're for, not who we're against. Amen. And then the last reality of the mission we're gonna look at today is this, Jesus is the Lord of the mission. And this is so much good news. (laughs) You're like, man, this has been heavy today. Okay, well, this is good news. This is good news. Why is this good news? Well, verses 38, then 1, like he's the Lord of the harvest, pray to him. He's the Lord of that mission, pray to him. And he, as the Lord is now sending us out, why is that good news? It's so, such good news, because it means he's the Lord of the harvest. The mission isn't dependent on me and it's not dependent on you. Man, is that good news. Jesus doesn't need me. If he needed me, he isn't much of a God, by the way. He doesn't need me. He doesn't need you, right? Need, no. He doesn't need us to be perfectly obedient, perfectly faithful in this mission because we won't be. Jesus doesn't need me to preach a perfect sermon today for disciples to be built up. Why? Because he's the Lord of the harvest. He's the Lord of the harvest. He's got it under control. He is faithful even when we aren't. He's laboring in the harvest even when we as his disciples are distracted by a million other things. However, <laughs> not letting us off the hook, however, in his grace and love and compassion, Jesus, the Lord of the harvest, is inviting us today. He's inviting us into the joy of being fully Active, involved in his mission in the world because the harvest truly is plentiful. And will we be the kind of people who will accept his invitation to join him in that harvest? Will we be those people? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for how it's encouraging and at the same time convicting. And so, God, I ask that you would give us the ears to hear what we need to hear from you today. We do not want to be people who are hearers of your word only. By your grace, God, we want to be doers of your word. So speak to us and show us, God, where we need to be encouraged and then where maybe we need to be repentant.